Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson, and you're going to hear an interview I did on trans medicine with Brandon Showalter, who is an evangelical journalist with the Christian Post, and Miriam Benchalom, who is a radical feminist Jewish lesbian who has been engaged in advocacy for a very long time in some of these areas and is herself a veteran and an ex-drill sergeant. Um, you're going to hear a lot of passion in this interview. I encourage these folks to talk about it with as much passion as they feel. Brandon and Miriam have been working specifically with this issue of trans medicine, whether or not medicalizing gender dysphoria and gender confusion among young people in particular is actually loving, is actually good medicine, is based on good science, and so on. Their view for both of them is it is absolutely not. Brandon's view, he said a number of times, is that um, trans medicine will prove to be the largest medical scandal in U.S. history. I think there's some possibilities there. Um, you'll also hear them talk s significantly about free thought, about how um, people are being asked within the realm of trans medicine and dealing with trans questions to um, say things that they know aren't true, to believe things that they know are false, and to act as though those things are true. And that this is detrimental to human individuality, the development of our personhood, the formation of our conscience, our capacity to love others, and our perception about the world being reliable. The third thing is, is that um, they believe and talk about how this is a rejection of a reasonable human anthropology, of what we know humans to be. Um, within trans medicine and the queering of the LGBT movement is this idea of an increased move, moving away from a teleological nature of human beings, that we are something that we must discover, to a individualistic and expressive view of human beings, that we aren't anything essentially, we are what we wish to be and which to wish to express ourselves as. This is a view of human beings that has never been shared by Christians and is fundamentally different than the way human beings have looked at themselves throughout the entire history of the world. Are we creatures that are already something by nature and must discover what that is and live in accord with it, a teleological or essentialist view of human beings? Or are we what we say we are, what we feel we are, and what we think we want to be? And can we be whatever we express ourselves as, which is the individualistic and expressive view of human beings? the non-essentialist view. Um, and both of these two people believe absolutely that without an essentialist or a teleological view of what a human being is, we actually start to go a little crazy because we can't affirm some of the most basic things about reality, i.e., for example, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Even to the point where um, recognizing that a child is a, a a baby girl or a baby boy when they are born, we are being told that we simply can't know that from simply observing the phenotype or the physiology of the child that we see. And that that is to deny what we do know about reality. And it's to look at human beings in a way they should not be looked at or treated. And that will lead to incredible injustices. It has already. And then lastly, they believe that this issue transcends partisanship. That there are some issues that should not be left-right, progressive, conservative, and so on. There are some that our humanity and our understanding of the world and, and reason and experience should lead caring people to see that, um, that we should transcend our partisanship divides and fight with each other and together on certain things. This has happened in America's past relative to certain wars that we felt like we had to fight to survive in humanity. It's happened in, um, in people came from both sides of the aisle in civil rights and against slavery. That was more of a North-South thing than it was a left-right thing. And this is another one of those issues where um, if, if they're right, and I personally think they are, that we um, need to get away from a massive quick fix created by our anxiety around the distress of people suffering from gender confusion, 
towards looking over the long term of what is a real, loving, long term way to care for and help people struggling with gender confusions or struggling with other difficulties of adolescence or development. So I hope you I hope you enjoy this, um, but I don't. I'm not really banking on you enjoying it. I'm banking on it shaking you up, hurting your feelings, making you think, and hopefully leading you to good discussions and perhaps even courageous action. Hey, welcome everybody to Engage and Equip, a resource designed to help build substantive disciples for the local church. We're doing a mini series called Beyond Hot Takes, where we're trying to look a little bit deeper at some of the issues in our culture that people um, maybe not, don't know much about, but we're already supposed to think something. And um, this one today is going to be a little bit hot. Um, we're going to be talking about transgenderism and the medicalization of people who identify as transgender people. I have two people who've worked a lot in this area and have been advocating a lot in this area. They feel extremely passionate about what they're going to tell you. And this is stuff you're not going to hear a lot of other places um, for intentional reasons relative to our, our media establishment. I have um, with me journalist Brandon Showalter and Miriam Ben Shalom. I'm going to have her introduce herself in a minute because she does a ton of things and has been involved in a number of organizations. I'm going to let her uh, talk about that stuff. Welcome, guys. I'm so glad that you're on the podcast today. So um, can we just start with you guys telling us a little bit about yourself, Miriam, if you would go first and give yourself a little introduction so people can know kind of where you're coming from and who you are. I am a, uh, a lesbian. I am Jewish and I have been a, an activist on behalf of the civil rights of LGBT people for many, many years. I am now active in challenging the trans ideology that seems to be seeping into every facet of society. I co-founded with an evangelical Christian woman, uh, Hands Across the Aisle Women in Coalition. We, we are working and challenging this issue. I helped co-found Compassionate Coalition um, on their board of directors, which is an organization that deals with families that are dealing with this issue uh, within their particular family group. And we also help out detransitioners. Um, I also work with uh, several groups uh, internationally, including some Israeli groups as well that I've mm. found. And you're out of Milwaukee, right, Miriam? You're a Wisconsiner like some of us? Yes, I am. I'm right here. I'm a badger born and bred. Oh, nice. All right, Brandon, how about you? Yes, I'm Brandon Showalter. I've been a journalist with the Christian Post here in Washington, D.C. since the summer of 2016. I'm originally from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, a Mennonite boy from the Valley. I now attend an Anglican church um, in Northern Virginia outside DC. I call myself an Anglicostal, <laughs> sort of a smash up of uh, Anglican and Pentecostal. It's a weird combo for some. But I've been reporting on the gender identity beat at CP soon after I started. And it was a presentation from Miriam that helped me reach as we say, peak trans, and where I first fell down the rabbit hole of finding out what was happening in this country and around the world, and we've become friends ever since, and it's been uh, a crucible. It's been a real journey learning about all of this and reporting on it as best I can. Uh, in my spare time, I like to cook, like to hike mountains, like to work out of the gym, and I like to sing and make music. That keeps me sane. Uh, but yeah, you know, when that, people say they're from the Valley, we always think Shenandoah Valley. That's the first thing that comes to mind, yeah. Born and bred, love it. It's God's country. So I found out about you guys and had invited you to the to the sexuality conference we were supposed to do last year before COVID hit. Um, but can you tell our listeners, I, and I found out about 
brain and by actually reading your work in Christian Post. Um, and then you said you have to, we have to have Miriam if she can come. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, like what happened that you got to know each other? Yes, it was in late 2016 as I'm just getting started and I notice the shift within contemporary LGBTQ politics and how language was being changed in the mass media. And I would, I was assigned to cover some of these stories and I just was so alarmed that our very means of communication, our language was being warped and twisted and so much confusion was being sown into the public mind. And I just, I thought this is just so Orwellian. I want to be compassionate toward people who have gender confusion, but it was so confusing to try and read purportedly mainstream news articles where they were talking about this and a male would be referred to as she or her. I mean, I know language evolves with time. I know that there are connotations that get added to words as, you know, culture changes and whatever. But this was like a complete, you know, manipulation and an overhaul. And I was very alarmed by that. And I started reading things that I just found so unbelievable. But when I met Miriam was in the February of 2016, where she was speaking at the Heritage Foundation on a cross-partisan panel. They had two liberals and two conservatives. Yeah, I saw and, that that video. Yeah, yeah, it was a very powerful panel. And Miriam's comments, and she also read the comments from a Catholic mother from the Midwest who was unable to be there. And it was her reading of her comments and then Miriam's own contribution to the panel where I just, something inside me just kind of snapped. And I remember hearing their presentations and walking back to the newsroom about the information that they'd presented, realizing that everything that I had been reading was indeed happening. And I, I, I just, everything changed for me that day. I just, my stomach tied up in knots. I just thought my head would spin off my body. I was so bewildered and horrified. And we've stayed in touch ever since as I've been reporting on these issues and uh, the horrors have not ceased. Um, I continue to hear from people uh, among the LGB portion of the acronym, people on the left and the right from all walks of life, from all over the country, from all over the world, really. Uh, and it has been quite a journey. <laughs> yeah. Mary, it seems like there's three main things, three main points that you guys have been working on. One is that um, trans medicine is a, is not a good thing. That is a, it is of epic proportions, terrible. Two, um, that um, there is a kind of thinking control, intimidation and mind control around this relative to free thought and free expression and free speech that affects religious, non-religious, interreligious, whatever people in a way that is really bad for humanity. And third, that therefore people need to put aside some of their normal differences and divisions and unite around some very basic human um, justice-based and truth-based things. Is that, is that like a kind of a fair summary of what you guys are trying to get at here and what we should, what, what how you want, would want to um, engage the minds of these listeners? I, I would say so. My, my primary obje objection is based very much on being a Jew. When I look at the surgeries and the medications that are being foisted upon human beings, and even children as young as four, five, even three, I feel like the ghost of Joseph Mengele has come back to haunt us. Um, if you look at what the Nazi experiments were doing to human beings, including vivisection, and you take a look at what is being done in terms of the butchery of bodies today, there are awfully awfully eerie, eerie, eerie similarities. 
I resent the cancellation of freedom of speech. I was a teacher of the English language for 37 years. I, I probably would not be here today were it not for the fact that I was canceled in Milwaukee. Um, I was supposed to be the grand marshal at the pride parade a number of years ago. And my page, people can pretty much say what they want as long as they don't threaten to kill somebody, hurt somebody. Well, there were some remarks that were not exactly complimentary to transgender people. And I made one myself. There was a, a, a human being who wishes to be called it, who says it's a dragon. And the person scared me. And I said, oh my God, would you want to take a shower next to somebody like that without ever knowing it previous to being a dragon had been a male identifying as trans. So for this, I was silenced and they didn't even have the courage of their convictions to tell me. I found out about it um, through a back door and you know, what, what cowardice. Mm-hmm. I think speaking out is important. I think taking to task and talking about big pharma and big medicine, because that's what this is all about. It's about money. And if this social contagion goes away, they will still make money because we're going to be dealing with the horror and the wreckage of human bodies and human minds for years to come because of this. So they will still be making money. And look, I'm an independent. I'm, I'm not a liberal per se, but I lean to the left. I take a lot of grief. I, I was going to say another word. I'll have to watch my language from, from people from the left because I will hang out and I will work with, with conservatives. Well, you know what? Too darn bad. This is not about being liberal or being conservative. This is about stopping the erasure of women and children, stopping medical experimentation on children, stopping vivisection, stopping the the, remo- the unlawful surgery, the removal of healthy body parts as a cure for feelings. Yeah, let's kind of let's get into that question, um, guys, about trans medicine first. That um, obviously the assistant um, secretary of health is going to be a trans woman. It looks like um, there were some discussions about like, is this good that we would do this with young children and so on? She was um, um, this uh, uh, male male to female transitioner um, was asked the que- asked question: Would you keep children from this and so on? And the response is like what you normally get is like trans medicine is a well-established and very uh, dynamic and nuanced med- system of medicine. And it's kind of like, that's all you get to know. It's sort of like this, a hand is waved in front of you. It's very scientific. It's very well-researched. It's it's the best standards of care and practice. And this is what we're going to do. And this is now like like a, our assistant attorney general, like our, our assistant um, uh, surgeon general. You know what I mean? So this is like, as mainstream as you could possibly get. And so the idea in a place like Madison of saying, no, no, this is Orwellian butchery of children. Just like that just sounds crazy. It it must be a conspiracy. That must be crazy. But what you guys are saying is like, no, I've waded through this both in terms of personal stories and the information. And that is wrong. Can you try to help people who've been, they've been watching the news. They feel they've been told if, if they're at all a compassionate person, 
they should be 100% in favor of this because, as we all have heard, anybody who has strong gender dysphoria will have a 40 to 45% attempted suicide rate if we do not do all these things with them and allow them and encourage them along these lines. And what you're saying is this is actually, it's, that's the worst thing you can do. So can you make that argument for me? How, like how, how, do we, how can we change our minds about that when so much is telling us that that's the only way we could possibly look at this if we're good people? Um, it's all bunk. Transgender medicine is completely experimental. It is fraught with gaslighting. You noticed that uh, Levine, the new assistant secretary of health, didn't even answer uh, the question, which you referenced there, Nick. Uh, Senator Paul of Kentucky asked him about the, the specifics of uh, these medical you know, practices and procedures that go on and, you know, the idea that you know it's it's possible for somebody to go in to go into the quote unquote wrong puberty i mean if you if you peel back the layers and you look a little bit deeper you will find that there is no there there because it's all predicated on the lie that it's actually possible to be born in the wrong body yes there are people a small number of people that are affected by the condition known as gender dysphoria and up until uh very recently, we've had diagnostic history of approximately 100 years. It used to be almost exclusively seen in young boys. Within the last you know, several years, it has exploded, and it's m- m- mostly the predominant demographic now is teen girls, and they do not have traditional gender dysphoria. It has been documented that this is a social contagion, a peer contagion, uh, influenced heavily by social media and internet. And the medical industrial complex, big pharma and other, you know, money making entities have seized upon this. And I would argue that there's even evidence that they've set this whole thing in motion so that they can have a, you know, school to gender gender clinic pipeline where they've got customers for life. Because if you go on these experimental medications, if you go on puberty blockers, for example, the vast majority go on this cross-sex hormones and then possibly even surgery. Meanwhile, as Miriam was just saying a moment ago, they're making bank. And so this entire project is about medicalizing people with identity issues. And if you have a profit incentive to do that, you're going to need a lot of customers. And so, of course, this would never be sold to the public if they were honest about what they were really doing. And so everything is shrouded in a lot of genderist euphemisms. It's, you know, robust research and it's very nuanced and all this Levine was saying during the hearing where he was supposed to be confirmed and noticing I'm saying he, I will not say she to refer to a person who is transgender identified. It serves, it serves none of us to lie about the sex of the body. But this, it is not compassionate. They accomplish all these things by stealth because they know if they were really honest and they used accurate language about what they were really doing, nobody would ever buy it. And so instead what they do is they, they gaslight and they talk about all of this in very sophisticated tones, but it's, it's all a mirage and um, they accomplish what they do by stealth because it would never have, it would never have purchased if they would actually talk about what they're really doing. Do you too feel as though it is truly conspiratorial in that there is that that, like the medical people involved in this know that this is going to be really bad for people medically long-term and they don't care. They just want to make money. Or do you think it's kind of like this intercultural contagion where like 
young people are facing the problems of puberty that they can't figure out. And this seems like a quick fix and this, and then their, their parents want this and there's, there's an ideology that supports it. And then medical people are like, Oh, we can do this for you. And then they see that there's a lot of profit in it and they feel like they might be able to help. And then it's like, it's like this interdysfunctional handholding that has all these perverse incentives in it, in it, that it's not like a quote, true conspiracy. Like somebody's just trying to cut the heart out of somebody, but it's like, it is such a web of dysfunction that what it's producing is something that amounts to a conspiracy. And because that perverse incentive of profit is there, it's very hard to let yourself see otherwise. And then if you're on the side who's doing these procedures, or if you're a person who's had these procedures done yourself, the incentives against saying I was totally wrong to do this and I've done something catastrophically wrong is super high too. So all the incentives just accelerate us in this direction. Do you think it's that? Do you think it's like that kind of a thing? I'm, I'm not in this enough to know. I, I, it's not like QAnon, okay? It isn't that kind of conspiracy. But what it is is there is a profit incentive here. Um, and I, I suspect that the people that are engaging in this know very well what it is that they're doing. I mean, how can a person have a, uh, be a medical doctor and then talk about transplanting a, a uterus into a male and so the male can carry a child? <laughs> it isn't just the uterus. I know because I'm a mother. I have a daughter. It involves a whole body and a whole lot of things. I don't know why it is what it is, but I can say that it's happening more often with young girls now because of the way women are valued. Females are valued in society. You know, we're cheap. Mm-hmm. 32 women are murdered a day. In the United States, it's like four a day now. Uh, it went up. It used to be only three a day were killed by by partners or people they knew. Now it's four a day. Um, women are, are throwaway in this society, and we're not respected and we're not honored. And so, of course, what girl wants to be seen as, as something to be used and then set aside? Okay. And quite incorrectly, they think that if they become men, you know, um, that they're going to get male privilege and male entitlement. But if you talk to any any woman who's detransitioned, um, she will tell you that it doesn't work that way, and they're still seen as women. The proof of the pudding is, is you know, didn't Mr. Jennings get woman of a woman of the year award? Um, but what do you see for females who transition? Uh, man giving birth? What you know? What do you see of Jennings now? Nothing. What do you what do you see? You you see. You know, man gives birth. No, no, it, it's this distortion of language and, and this this bending of consciousness that's so reprehensible. You asked about the conspiracy. Uh, I think it is some of both, Nick. Um, I have interviewed endocrinologists, and I, I'm thinking particularly of an article that I did back in 2018 about Lupron, which is a drug that is used to treat prostate cancer and endometriosis. Uh, and it has been used in sex offenders, and they're now giving that to halt normal puberty in children. Uh, it, it, I mean, I, it just, it's mind-blowing. And one of the endocrinologists that I interviewed said, yes, there is a very diabolical core of a few people that have engineered this thing, and I think it's sweeping up a lot of other people who might just not have read up on some of the latest research, and so they just sort of go along with it. But no, there is some intense wickedness at the root of a lot of this. And a standard weakness in the endocrine community, this endocrinologist told me, was that a lot of doctors are 
just trying to practice medicine. They want to live their normal lives and they are not, you know, reading endocrinology journals all the time. And meanwhile, these radicals have retooled the guidelines in a very short amount of time and they've updated policies. And so then your average endocrinologist sees it and it's like, well, it, they must have gone through the process and determined that all of this was fine. Oh, no, absolutely not. And yeah, it, so, that seems really weird, doesn't it? Because like anybody who's looked at this at all knows that there was experimentation with this in Hop at John Hopkins like in the 70s. And right. the general perception was through time that this was not successful. Helping people become another sex as a way of dealing with gender dysphoria just wasn't successful. And right. and then all of a sudden in just it's seeming like no time. It was like all of a sudden we had a field of medicine with standardized care and practices that was above board and board certified and blah, 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 stamp on, stamp this, stamp this, stamp that. And you're like, how could you possibly have a medical system that is all developed and nuanced and blah, blah, blah in like five years on something like literally changing the sex of a human being? Like that just seems preposterous scientifically. You can't literally change the sex of the human being. You are XY, I am XX. You can change your presentation. In other words, how you look, you can wear clothing, but you're still XY and I'm still XX no matter what. In terms of the suicide rate, trans activists will oftentimes say it's 40, 41 to 49% you know, have, have thought about suicide and, or been suicidal. That's such a bad number because the original study was based on, I think, of 178 people that were pretty much well chosen. Um, it wasn't, there was no blind, there was no, there was no peer review, there was no, no careful screening of, of people. There were, it, it was, I could have gone out on the street and, and gone into a psychiatric hospital and, and, talk to people and then said, oh yeah, well, 49% of the people I talked to were going to commit suicide. You know, it, it, it was such a small study. Like at first, the proof of it is, is for a long time, for about six months or a year, everything was male brain and female brain until some really good, solid peer-reviewed research came out, which said there really isn't any difference between a male and a female brain. There are, there are some small things, but it, it, it isn't like men have one kind and women have another. And all of a sudden, that you don't hear much about that anymore. They're mm -hmm. trying to cherry pick. They, they hook themselves on to the latest idea that comes out. I think that the big money is, is from from transgender millionaires and billionaires that are trying to, to do something. I think it's a transhumanist cult. I, I think that they're trying to do away with women. An example of what it is that I'm trying to say here is, I don't know how many people listening ever read Frank Herbert's books, The Dune Series. There was a group of people called the B'nai Tleilaxu that would produce they called them golas, but clones. Nobody knew how they did it until they realized that there weren't any female B'nai Tleilaxu around. Well, the men were taking females, raising them up, destroying their brains, and then using them as wombs to grow whatever it was they wanted to grow. I think that's what's happening right now. I think there's an actual movement to erase women because we're not valuable. You, you might need us for breeding. Oh, my, my partner just suggested, too, that, that and she's quite right. In Atlanta, six women were killed. They say it's a hate crime because they were Asian. 
why does nobody see that the murder of four women a day, that these six women were killed? Why is murdering women femicide, not a hate crime? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miriam, that's an interesting question, I think, for you to answer relative to LGBT. Q questions. I mean, for, for example, there's, there's a number of people who have said, like in Iran and in Russia, that the idea of having trans medicine actually eliminates the having to deal with, with um, gay and lesbian people. That like, if you can say, well, okay, if you like, if you're a woman and you like women, it's easier for us in a strongly Islamic society to just make you a man. Then, then we don't have a homosexuality problem. Right. Like, to what extent do you think that this is erase the erasure of women, like that, that women aren't valued as opposed to it like taking away the ambiguity of homosexuality for people in a, even in a culture like America, but especially in other places where it seems like, it's like, it seems like Iran is way that they're accepting trans medicine when they are a hundred percent still rejecting people identifying as gay and lesbian. So, so my, like my intuition has been in this is that like, that this has more to do with people like mentally trying to cope with the idea of, gay and lesbian people as opposed to women. So how would you frame that? Would you say it's both or would you like nuance that somehow? All, all religions are patriarchal for the most part. And I say it has to do with patriarchy and the fact that, that men have all the cards right now. I think lesbians and gay men are seen as outlaws because we don't need to rely on the traditional things that heterosexuals do. Look, I don't have a man in my life to fix something in my house. So if something goes wrong, I have to learn how to do it myself. I was in the army. I was a drill sergeant. I hunt. I fish. I camp. I mow the lawn. I fix things around my house. I don't need a man to do it. This is threatening to some men, you know, not Mm -hmm. Brandon, thank goodness, but, you know, it's threatening. Lesbians are the original people who say, we don't need your patriarchy. We can get along just fine on our own. Gay men are the same way. They're not interested in having children they might want to adopt and they might do surrogacy, which is another thing entirely. Um, but they don't need to rely on, on the traditional family units. So we are the outlaws. Mm-hmm. We are the people who say, you know, there's something wrong here. We're, we're, we're the people howling in the dark at the edge of society. So I went to college in the 90s. And I would have grown up in what I would have considered what we would call now a highly homophobic, homophobic society, like that, like people made gay jokes all around me, people called gay people queer, all kinds of stuff like that. And they were kind of mean to them if they would come out and be public about it. And it seemed like it took about 25 years for that to really move to where I live in Madison. And if you say something against LGBT, anything like your business is gone. Right. Like it's it's completely flipped. But the trans thing like happened in like 20 minutes. Do you think it's because the LGB thing had paved the way so strongly for it? And so it was just obviously the next thing. Or do you feel like people dealt with it psychologically differently than being like, well, we need to treat gay and lesbian people differently than they have been traditionally? Well, the the transgender movement uh, has done nothing of its own, done nothing original. They, They hitched their wagon to our star. We did all the work. Um, you know, we worked for civil rights. I was one of the people that helped change the military's policy and end the ban on gays and lesbians in the military. Um, we, you know, got gay marriage, which is whether people like it or not, marriage is a civil contract, and we are entitled mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Transgenderism is not at all like being gay or lesbian. It, it's not a sexuality at all. 
Can you break that down for people? Because I think people who haven't experienced any of these things, they, they, they'll be bewildered that you're like, I'm gay and I don't think transgenderism is a thing. Like you literally believe they're different phenomenons entirely. One is like a sexuality or an orientation. The other is a mental... Well, aberration or... Uh, uh, it, it's a mental illness. Gender dysphoria is a mental illness still in the DSM. So why people are not trying to deal with it psychologically is beyond my comprehension, other than lots of money to be made. But don't you think, Miriam, that like people would have said, yeah, but homosexuality was in the DSM just years previous, and that was taken out, and that was seen as an act of justice for gay and lesbian people. Isn't this just a continued procedure towards justice? It sounds like you think there's a material difference between these two things. Like One is, one is to, to say a man is a woman or a woman is a man is a very different thing than for a woman to say she likes or loves a woman or a man to say, because one is like a action that you do and a preference that you have. The other is like a, a belief that you are something you physically aren't. Is that a fair way to think about it? Look, I got born this way. I didn't have to have any body parts removed to make me a lesbian. I didn't have to take any hormones. I didn't have to take any puberty blockers. I am what I am. This is part and parcel of what I am, just like heterosexuality. If you are a heterosexual, you didn't have to have any body parts removed to make you heterosexual. You didn't have to take any hormones. You didn't have to take any puberty blockers. Well, my partner says, wasn't there a chromosomal difference? I'm not uh, aware of that, those studies. There was supposedly a gay gene that they found in men. But the fact is, sexual orientation is part and parcel of a human being. But why would you, do you find difficulties with that? But no difficulty if I come to you and say, you know, I feel like I'm a six foot seven inch black male basketball player and I should be paid millions of dollars to play basketball. And, you know, people would say that's okay. Mm-hmm. I've heard people compare this to um, anorexia. They, for an anorexic, their internal sense of orientation towards their weight and what they look like is very intensely that they're too fat, even if they're, they look like they're about to die skinny. And, and they'd say, you can't, you can't fix that person's body. You have to fix their perspective, the way they're looking at it, um, because their physiology can't change. And it sounds like some people have said in the gay and lesbian movement that like, um, it's immaterial, like who you decide to partner with is does not involve, like, as you said, cutting off of healthy body parts or manipulating your physical body. You can do it as an intact human individual without engaging in human physical destruction. And therefore, it should be well within the realm of freedom and action, as opposed to trans medicine, which is actually going to change the physical bodies of people that we bring into the system. And, is, and isn't that a, a big core of what you're saying, that this is, this is har- physically harmful and it is um, destructive and manipulative to the human body in a way that's, that's as you said, like experimenting on Jewish people. It was like a, a utterly ill-founded action of medical malpractice. I, I wish um, that I had some of the photographs that I was going to use in our presentation for last October to show people what Mengele did and what is being done now. I mean, I wish people mm-hmm. could. I wish people could hear the voices. Part of the problem that I perceive is mass media, uh, mainstream media, including public television, my God, is not allowing the other side of the story. They just did a big piece on, on transgenderism. And I wrote to them and said, in all fairness, 
why can't you have the other side of the story be presented civilly and respectfully? And I haven't heard from them. Mainstream media is is not helping this out. And it's it's programs like this, people like you, that so, we turn to because somewhere somebody will listen. Can the two of you guys just do that? T- tell some of the stories. I know I know both of you have interviewed and talked to people who felt like they were led into this unfaithfully and they have really regretted this. And these people's stories are not widely heard. Do you want to let us in on some of these sorts of stories, this kinds of things that you've interacted with? I'd be happy to. And I would just say, just to tag on to what Miriam was saying earlier, um, as, as Christians, I know, Nick, you and I, as we have a historic sexual ethic with respect to how we see ourselves, sexual identity. And, you know, I'm very much a believer in our faith's teaching on the subject. But what I have written publicly and said is that whatever people think about sexual ethics, theologically or otherwise, same-sex attraction is not a condition to be medicalized with hormones. I mean, and I, I find it bewildering, that, but I get that correspondence in my inbox sometimes where youth who are, maybe they haven't even come out as gay or lesbian yet or whatever, but they are experiencing some degree of it. And they're now being told in therapist offices and in their doctor's visits that, well, what that really might mean is that you were born in the wrong body. And so mm-hmm. it, it, this is this is not a way to treat people with, with that at all. But to, to answer your question, though, I the story that stands out in my mind was a feature story that I wrote last year uh, that was approximately 6,000 words. It was from a man who was led into a gender transition surgery. It was an orchiectomy, which is a surgical removal of the testicles. And he was told, uh, you know, in genderist parlance that if he removed, quote, the part of the body that makes the testosterone. And they never used sex-specific terms during his visits, he told me. Uh, and so he was led into this as the pathway to make him feel better. And they made him, the gender clinicians that where he went made it sound like this was not going to affect his health, how he functioned. This was just seen as the necessary step in the pathway. And he referred to it. They, they always couched it in it's like multi-level marketing upsell terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how industrial these practices are. Let's like, get you in on the conveyor belt to the surgeon's table. It just feels like really bad medicine to use euphemism oh, for body oh, parts. Sure. It, just, it sounds yes. like like fundamentalist religion from 200 years ago. Like you uh, yeah, can't except, even say the word penis or something. On steroids, literally. Yeah. I mean, it's it really is, is that bad. He had been on some hormones for a while, and he thought, well, if he goes through with the surgery, and this guy was, you know, said he was on the autism spectrum, and that's a common, you know, trait where the young people, especially who are being affected by this, are suffering from a variety of mental health co- comorbidities, including autism. But he was, they went through for the surgery, and this poor man wound up brace yourself, ejaculating blood and thoroughly miserable and regretting it. But as is the case, and I think many states, including California, where he was from, the statute of limitations for suing surgeons was about a year. And what detransitioners will often tell you is that the regret that they feel after they go through a radical invasive surgery lasts about a year before it sort of hits them psychologically that this wasn't 
the right thing at all. And then legally they're tied up because the statute of limitations for them to sue for any kind of malpractice has already expired. And so there's a growing number of detransitioners who are now through unconventional media outlets trying to raise their voices and say, no, 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 this was not good. I was led into this. I was made to think this would help me and it didn't. But they can't get their stories out, as Miriam was just saying. And but pretty soon, I think the problem will be so unignorable that there will be no other choice. The question is, is how long is the purportedly mainstream media going to silence them and not allow them to share their experiences? Because it's, it is experimental medicine. A lot of these drugs that they are being given, uh, Lupron, I mentioned it earlier, to date, it has never been formally approved by the FDA for this use in minors at all. It is approved for a condition called precocious puberty, which is where children go through puberty too early and they delay it until the proper age. Mm -hmm. But for gender dysphoria, our federal agencies that are charged with scrutinizing drugs have never approved this drug for this use and it's prescribed off label. And so thousands upon thousands of children and young people now are going on these hormonal agents that will foreclose their fertility and put them at great risk for all kinds of horrific diseases and meanwhile, the culture is cheering them on. Uh, there will be a reckoning, and I think we're going to see it soon. Uh, and the media uh, is complicit in this scandal. Do you? Th yeah, I have some fears about whether or not um, scandals will be unmasked when the entire media is complicit in it. I mean, it's I mean, scary. To I think. mean, I mean, you can't get you can't get a reporter into the camps at the southern border right now to take footage of. 171,000 people who came over in the last month or something like that. Do you really think these folks are going to turn the cameras around on themselves and say, Hey, we would, or do you, or at some point, will they turn the cameras on the people who are doing trans medicine in order to save themselves? I have hope that there will be some turnaround, particularly because of what I'm seeing in the British press. The okay. British media has been better on this, wouldn't you say, Miriam? I think it's probably BBC Newsnight has been excellent. And they're just the producers and the journalists that have been covering the Tavistock Clinic, which is the gender clinic in London that has come under some uh, heavy fire lately, rightly so. Uh, it's starting to be exposed more across the pond. The American media uh, is just going to have to be up to people like me and Miriam and others who find unconventional ways to tell their stories and finally puncture the near total blackout on this issue. Um, but we are seeing some signs of that, mm -hmm. uh, but it's it, it's hard to know. And it, it is, I think, I, I tell you what, I really do as a journalist resent the, I mean, I, I can't, oh, I'm getting all worked up now, but I can't, I, I detest the journalists more than the doctors who are butchering young people and vulnerable people, because the only reason that these crazy doctors are able to do this is because the journalists are covering for them. If there was any scrutiny of this, if there was any critical questioning, I don't think this would stand. There would be a massive public outcry. The kinds of things that some of these doctors are doing, they really do. Like Miriam is not exaggerating to draw parallels to Mengele. I hesitate to do that as someone who's not Jewish, but it, mm -hmm. it's absolutely true. Some of the pictures that I have seen, some of the documents that I have been shown, I, I feel like I have stared into the abyss of horror. I mean, it disturbs my sleep at night. It's that bad. And people have got to get over this psychological barrier of their nice pharmacist in town or the nice doctor who has integrity because the foxes are not only guarding the hen house, they're inside and it's dinner time. 
It's that bad. You have to believe us. We are not being extreme or conspiratorial here. It really is as dire as we're saying. A couple of things. Um, I've read in a number of places that the likelihood of certain side effects to happening, taking different things or having certain medical procedures done is fairly low. However, you could have like as low as maybe let's say a 2% likelihood of having some kind of problem. But if you, if the number of problems that you can have is like 45 problems and your likelihood of having any individual one of them is like 2%, it still makes it virtually certain you're going to have at least one of them one of these major side effects um is there any any data or literature are the are the side effects is the material because i've heard a lot of people say man these hormones and these things are going to have these major physiological consequences i know that that's the case we know that's the case in botched surgeries or surgeries that promise they could do things they couldn't do or people regretting that they did them are we seeing things yet like kids having heart attacks because they've been taking these hormones or kids like these people moving into their twenties or early thirties where they're, they are literally having these sorts of side effects or kidney disease or major liver problems or that sort of thing. Is that happening yet? I can tell you that it, there are, I get phone calls where parents will tell me of the health problems that their children who are on these drugs are experiencing. Mm -hmm. But again, I would not expect to see any purportedly mainstream media coverage of the subject. And it's especially hard here in the United States because, uh, we don't have centralized medicine and therefore the data is harder to track. I mean, whatever people think of, you know, socialized, socialized medicine, national health care, it's like the figures are very hard to track down. And I have also heard, and I believe it very much to be true, that young people and others who go into these gender transition drugs and surgeries, if ever they are unhappy with it, detransitioners like having people who adequately address their their health issues once they decide that this really didn't work out is very hard and they are dropped like a hot potato and then sometimes they kill themselves i mean there's there's a huge i mean people want to talk about suicide rates there's some tremendous you know evidence of people who are post operative after they've regretted yeah. you know gone through and disregret then they take their lives and so yeah. it didn't help like they were promised that it would and so i don't know about all of the i mean i all, yeah. only thing i can say anecdotally is what i've heard from people who have gone through these issues but yeah, we, I, will, we will see we will see strokes heart attacks liver problems kidney diseases and i i'm already seeing anecdotal evidence of it and it will give us a few years and we're going to be seeing an epidemic of you know probably endocrine failure and all sorts of other things, cancers, who knows what. Yeah. I've read in a number of places that in trans medicine, there's a progression that you go through that takes several years and that the horror of recognizing that you're never going to get what you want, which is to be the other sex. You don't really realize that's never going to happen until you get to the end. And so you go through like the hormones and this, and then the mastectomy and, and like, you know, each of these steps until you get to where you have to decide on phallioplasty or whatever. And then which is a construction of a, a external penis like organ ish thing. And like, and then after that you realize there's nothing left. Like this is as man as I'm going to be, or as woman as I'm going to be And you're not a man or a woman. And it sort of kind of comes crashing in on you that like, this is it, right? Like this is where you're going to be. 
And trans medicine does not deal with uh, detransitioners, nor does the trans community. Um, if somebody decides that they did make a mistake and are, you know, do not wish to continue, they're, they're treated like a pariah and they're told, oh, you weren't really, you aren't a real trans anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And nobody knows what a real transgender is because there's no definition for it because it's all based on self-identification because of something or other called feelings, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. In terms of puberty blockers, there's, there is a lot of evidence coming out in terms of heart problems, um, blood clots, um, uh, bone structures, stunted yeah. uh, bones, right? Like this. What is most oh, horrific, wow. though, is that in terms of medicine, even say you don't have your your penis removed, or you don't have your vagina and your uterus and and your uh, ovaries removed, there is. There are health problems that go on with that, and they're not reversible. They're forever. Mm-hmm. And and even uh, Buck Angel, I think Buck Angel is a famous female to male. She talked about problems, you know, with with cramps because of degeneration of the the vagina and the uterus and everything else that was due to taking male hormones, and and a lot of pain was involved. Mm-hmm. This is reversible, and and people in the trans community deny that, but it happens to be a fact. You can't change it. The other thing that's really interesting is when you give children these blockers and stuff, it affects their brain as well. They don't mature. Mm-hmm. I've heard that there are significant brain effects for this because yeah. the, your pubescent hormones transition your brain a lot. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that to me is just the most unconscionable thing about it. I mean, it, it, it's bad. I mean, I am not one who thinks that any kind of quote unquote sex changes are ethical medicine, but especially, can we not agree? Can we not all agree that children should not be subjected to this? I mean, and especially the case uh, this, you know, Miriam talks about Mengele, but unfortunately this country, America has a sordid history of medical scandals and, Black women in this country know what it is like for to be experimented on gynecologically and have their fertility and the fruits thereof stolen from them. Uh, so it doesn't magically become medically ethical to sterilize someone, especially a child, if you wrap it in a rainbow flag or a pink and blue striped banner. And your your comments about brain development are spot on. I mean, the, what the the hormone blocker does it. You know, the hypothalamus, when that sort of stimulates the the, the necessary places in the brain where when the pubertal signals are to begin to allow puberty to happen, it stops it. And you don't get that time back. I mean, people talk about blockers being a quote unquote pause button. No, you don't pause a necessary normal function and then assume that everything's going to be fine later. That's just not how the human physiology works. Puberty... I mean, the brain actually changes its configuration. It has more folds. It has more creases. And that's because things are changing. There's more nerves being developed and everything else. What happens is you have these people like, you know, poor Jazz. Um, it, it was a, a boy, you know, probably a gay boy. And his, he, his mother took him, I think, where to Thailand? 
someplace. No, no, he was. No, that was you're referring to um, the mermaids oh, gal. That's what she said. Jazz, jazz, jazz. They did jazz in Florida. Jazz Jennings of TLC. And and this poor kid can't get it together. He wants to go to college and everything else. He has uh. the emotional ability to be an adult. I mean, his mother has to remind him to dilate his artificial vagina. Talk about creepiness. And you want to, I want to say a little bit more about that too, because people don't realize just how far this has gone in terms of uh, media mind molding of this issue. I mean, Jazz as a teenager was castrated on, pub, on, on a publicly viewable channel, and they celebrated his mutilation baking a cake with a penis on it and where jazz cut the penis off the cake. And I can't believe that's a sentence I just said, but that a major entertainment channel normalized high level abuse of, of a teenager. And if people think, well, I just don't watch that show. It's like, this is what is being sewn into the public. And the young people are watching this stuff and they think this is stunning and brave and normal. No, it is not normal to, watch a psychologically suffering, clearly dissociated teen boy who has been told since he was very young that he is the opposite sex be butchered. No, no more. Yeah. I think one of the, I think one of the, this brings us to another thing. Um, another Jewish writer, Abigail Schreier wrote the book, Ir Irreversible Damage. Um, my wife and I listened to it in somewhat horror on a road trip together. We listened, let our teenage girls listen to it too, because of course they're under tons of pressure to be affirming of trans medicine on social media and those kinds of platforms. This kind of gets to the thing. One of the arguments she made in that book is, is that there is a, there's a very strong clustering effect, especially around teenage girls where like one girl comes out trans and it just so happens, even though trans folks used to be like one in 300,000, that like four or five or nine or 12 girls in this grade at that school are all trans. I'll, I'll find out, so to speak, that they're trans, that there's this really that and her argument, and I'm more sympathetic to Abigail's argument. I, I'm sure there's truth to what you're saying, Miriam. Um, I wish I wish I knew the answer to all these things. I, I tend to think that, that some of these things are kind of multi-causal. I think adolescence has become unbearably difficult for young people and for a number of reasons and partly families coming apart partly not being loved, partly being lied to, partly, like, partly not having a clear anthropology par for lots of different reasons. And that they're, that in trying to cope, what Schreier argues is that um, the trans narrative that is that like this one thing, it's like, I think um, Mary might've said this be before we started recording, that it's almost like a cult, that there's like this one religious ideological idea that if you put that into your worldview, it like makes sense of everything. So like you have all these problems as a teenage person, you don't feel like you're, you're like you're a girl, but you don't feel like you can become a woman. You don't feel like you're being treated well. You don't know what it means like really to be a woman in yourself. You're, you don't, you don't have a strong sense of who you are. You're afraid of your peers. And you, and then you, you get on this chat room and you realize like, if I do this one thing, I am untouchable in school. I'm untouchable. Everybody has to affirm me and nobody can touch me, right? I It answers all of my questions and tells me everything about my life makes sense now because, because of this, right? And everybody's encouraging me to go along that road. So everybody's on my team now. My parents have to be, my teachers are, my social workers are, and this is all answered. And then you get this cluster effect because people go, oh yeah, that works. There it is. And because this takes time, you know, it takes five to 15 years for people to realize that this is bad. 
And by then it's way, it's way too late. Does that like, do you resonate with that? Does that sound too simplistic to you? What do you, what do you think? It's hard for me to say because I think each generation has their problems. Look, when I, when I was growing up, in order for me to figure out what I was, I had to go to the public library and look up the word homosexuality. And at that time, 1966, right, it was called a perversion, whatever. And I thought, oh, that isn't what I am. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a long time for me to figure it out. Um, yeah. I, I think... I think we have an entitled, for the most part, not whole and complete, because I see there are a lot of really good young people around, and I I applaud them and I support them. But there's a certain cadre of entitled young people that never earned any self-respect, never earned much of what they had. They got medals for showing up, uh, you know, little awards for showing up. And they've never had a sense of what it is to sit down, work hard, and do something. Now, all of a sudden, you know, they got everybody on their side and they're getting all the attention they want. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, um, that's pretty. Mm -hmm. And I I think it has to do with the way society has been going for a long time. You know, um, get get a medal for just showing up. Really? Mm -hmm. I I was a teacher and I and I saw a lot of that. I taught at the at the college level and. You know, I'd get my best students were displaced workers who wanted to to have a new career and who worked their their butts off for me. My worst students, for the most part, were kids that just graduated from high school. Well, I was given a C in English. I was given. Do you do you hear that? Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, a C in English doesn't work at the college level. I had students come in with 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 clothes that didn't fit properly, and I had to tell them. I don't want to see your buttocks in my classroom. Pull up your pants. And I mean it literally. I, I, it wasn't just seeing boxers. It was buttocks. Mm-hmm. They have no sense of responsibility in terms of what it is. They have no, no understanding. I mean, what do they think the real world out there is going to do? They don't have a clue. And so they think that, oh, if I'm trans, everything will go okay. J- just wait, wait and see. Yeah, because in some sense, it's the ultimate victim status. And if you are a victim in this country, then people aren't supposed to make things hard for you. People are supposed to make things easier for you. And so it seems like this is, if you're trans, then like, how can anybody hold your feet to the fire about anything? Because you're, you've are you been hurt. And, you're, and pe- trans people are treated as though they're highly fragile human beings. And because of this condition that they have, right? And so if you do anything that could um, disrupt their fragility, then you're doing something that's hateful and um, and inhuman and so on. Um, I, I don't know if people think these things through literally, but I think that like kids feel the difference. They feel how things are going. They see that they're being criticized by their teacher, that they're getting their feet held to the fire, and that there's another group of people that that's not quite true of. You know, there's this whole balagon going on in Madison right now with this one teacher at a middle school who started out being non-binary and then he became trans and then he wanted to start using the bathroom that uh, the uh, the girls were using, the elementary school girls were using, mm-hmm. and a court case going on about it now. And the children were encouraged to send him messages, you know, supporting him and he was given a day at school and given the opportunity to explain things omgwtf 
Yeah. Yeah, that's Madison for you, Miriam. I, I don't know what to tell you. This place is is it's yeah, it's like you're not allowed to think it. You can't think that through. Like the ideology tells you the answers. It's it's funny. Like I grew up I you know, having grown up Roman Catholic and being and then becoming a Christian later, you know, one of the things I had to study were all the ways in which Christians have been abusive over time, like in, in ways in which religion has been bad, right? Because as a pastor, I'm supposed to try to make that happen as little as possible, right? And it just, it reminds me of like modern 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 ideology along these lines. It reminds me of things like Spanish Inquisitions and ultra-fundamentalists and cultish kinds of groups. But I want to get a little bit at the issue of speech, because I think both you and Brandon hold very closely this idea that um, you shouldn't affirm something you believe is false and you shouldn't be demanded to say something you believe is false in public. And the government should certainly not be advocating or trying to force people to say things they believe are false. And if you do that, you enter a world of totalitarianism that is completely unacceptable and people should fight as strong as possible. Can you guys say a little bit about like what you're experiencing with that relative to this movement? I'd be happy to. I, As a journalist, it is especially important for me. Um, I, I love the First Amendment, both as a Christian as a journalist and just as an American, I mean, so many of the freedoms that I cherish, speech, press, religion, they're all right there. And uh, it, it is exactly as you say, it is the epitome of a totalitarian creed to be forced to say something you know to be false. I mean, that you just erase and you lose all of your freedoms if you you lend credence to that. If you cede the language, you've basically ceded the entire debate, if there ever even was a debate. Mm -hmm. And I remember early on when these issues were just, I mean, like I said, I started in 2016 at CP and, you know, things really just took a lurch to the the transgender stuff within our politics right around that time. And I, I even met with some radical feminists and lesbians here in DC, you know, a few years ago, and they were telling me that they barely recognized the LGBT movement anymore because it had so changed. And many of them disagreed with the direction, but they were powerless to stop it because everything had been subsumed by this gender identity, transgender movement. And they were being forced, they were saying that they had to say certain things and they didn't want to do that. And I I just, I, I saw that this was an issue that was affecting everyone. I mean, free speech is for everyone. And if you're forced to say things that you don't agree with or don't believe, you, we've just lost that. And it's, I mean, I think it's the shining star in our constitution, frankly. And the, the fact that people are so willing to just go along with this is truly alarming. And it's made me wonder, like, what has gotten into most people that, that I mean, it used to be that you could agree to disagree and you could shake hands afterward. Not so here, not about this. And so I'm, I, I just, as early on with my editors, we, as these issues were taking off in culture, we were like, we have got to decide what language we are going to use when we report on this. Because if we cede our very means of communication in service to an ideology, we're not going to contribute anything meaningful. And I can tell you the fact that when we report on this, that we use the hyphenated trans identified or transgender identifying because we don't want to overwrite the truth of biology. Mm-hmm. It has gained a lot of non-Christian readers of the Christian post, left, right, and center, mm-hmm. because 
they know that we are intent on being truthful. And if reporting is truthful, it will speak for itself. It will stand alone. And it doesn't matter who's saying it. The truth can be spoken by a white male Christian evangelical center right dude who's 35 like me or a radical feminist lesbian Jew like Miriam. The truth is the truth no matter who says it. Yeah, I think I think one of the things um, one of the things that I had to learn in college as I, I was an evangelical Christian in college, and one of the things that um, that drew me to the to the LGBTQ student group was that our groups were similar in this that the college pretended not to hate us, but it did, and we were a very small minority that people were kind of polite to, but really didn't like, and um, and so I, I, you had to kind of learn to be your own person because people weren't going to like you. Like you, you were never going to be approved by the majority, and um, I, I've talked to LG, LGB folks who who said it was a huge part of my development at becoming an individual to recognize that I was going to be in a minority and that people were not going to congr- congratulate me, and I had to I had to always say what I thought was true and true about myself, and so Miriam, I, I wondered like how you think about this, like about just the, the pressure to call somebody who's biologically female he if they're trans or that you're supposed to affirm certain ideological markers relative to trans movement and how you've chosen to not do that. My guide in this matter is Thomas Paine. Mm-hmm. Uh, take a look at uh, sometime at say, go on, go on Google and say Thomas Paine quote on, on lying. He says that there is no great, I'm paraphrasing here. Okay. That there's really no greater evil than for a man to state that he believes in something that he really doesn't believe in and act as if he believes it. He says that that opens to do- the door to much great mischief, his work. Mm-hmm. In other words, there is no greater evil than to purport and say you believe in something that you really don't believe in. It's a lie. I refuse to lie. I am not going to do it. I have integrity. I have honor that I, that I cherish in myself. And I will not prostitute my integrity, my honor, um, my compassion to a falsehood. I will not do it. I refuse. It is why I have never hidden. You see my name. You see my face. I don't use little cute uh, anime pictures or call myself a cutesy name. What you see is what you get. Because I believe that telling the truth is, is the shield that we have. And it is the way that we will eventually win this. Because lies get found out, but the truth is what it is. And biology is what it is. It is and not this, And this has cost you, Miriam, right? So this, it's not like you stood up and everything went great. Like you said that you've experienced cancellation and attacks of many kinds. Oh, I've been threatened. I got told by one transgender that I should get back in the uh, oven where I belong. Uh, that, do you get the reference? Mm-hmm, I do. Okay. I mean, I've been called all kinds of names. And you know what? I don't care. I really don't. Call me whatever you want. You know, these people, you know, oh, people are going to come and I was told that they would piss in my grave. Re- really good. I'm going to tell the boat captain to take them out in the middle of Lake Michigan and then turn really quickly so they'll fall overboard. That way they can indeed swim in my ashes. <laughs> or, um, yeah, I, I've tried to tell Christians this for a long time. They don't matter to me. They aren't important. They aren't germane to my life. Right. I know who I am. I don't need their affirmation. I don't need their approval. Yes. I need to live with my heart, my soul, and my conscience every day. And this is what I do. Okay. 
So if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, um, this is very much a part of what should be your faith is that um, if you if you please man, you cannot please God. And if you choose to please God, who is of the truth and tells the truth and advocates for the truth and wishes for us to live according to the truth, you can't be so concerned about what people think of you. I, and I and it's it's astonishing to me how many people and Christians who claim to put God first are willing to tell lies to get ahead in life and to be liked. And I, if you, if you have to begin to see what an abomination that is to your religious belief to the God that you serve, but also to your the, your God given humanity. If you are made to lie and you and you submit to that, what you lose in yourself is is horrifying. Oh, it really is, Nick. I'm so glad you brought that up because look, the question come. I, I get this question a lot from from Christians who just they sometimes ask me, "Why do you care so much about this? This just seems like this is a very fringe, tiny little issue. Like these are suffering people." And I'm like, "You don't realize what's at stake because this distorts reality as we know it." There's an evolutionary biologist that I, I quoted in a recent speech on this topic uh, some months ago, and he says, and he's been very active in uh, speaking out about this, and he says, the reality of our biological sex, this is true, he's not a Christian, but I, I totally agree with this statement, is that if we deny this in mass, we stand to lose our collective tether to reality. That's a big deal. And Christians who are accountable to Christ, to God, should care about that. I mean, it, I want to live in reality. I, I, I don't we all? I mean, and if we are willing to just, you know, want to be liked or just or allow our compassion to be weaponized, that's another thing. It's like the manipulation around love and compassion when it comes to this is just astounding. And you cannot yeah. allow yourself to be so emotionally blackmailed by, you know, what is at base, a very dark movement to try and harm the bodies of many, many people because you just want to be nice or you just want to be compassionate. You have to recognize the many dynamics that are in play here and and speak the truth at all costs. Because let me tell you, the carnage, the brutalized bodies of bearded, breastless girls are showing up in my inbox and their parents are calling me sobbing and wailing because of the horror that's been inflicted on their families. Where is the compassion for those folks? I mean, I am one journalist crying out in the dark. We can't afford not to speak the truth. Yeah, let me ask you two more questions, Dan. One, I'll give you both questions and I'll answer One is, what would you tell parents about this? And then the second is, if a lot of people in, in the tra- pro-trans movement would say that you are horrible, uncompassionate, hateful people for saying this. So can you give me to end with like a vision for compassion for the, for the people we're talking about, like people who are really struggling, they're young, they're struggling with their identity. They don't know who they are. They feel like the trans movement is an array of hope in a envelope of darkness. Like how should we as human beings love these people? Right? So those are two questions. What would you say to parents who feel like they're being bullied, attacked, they have to affirm blah, blah, blah. Right. And to how do we love the people in question? Right. Shall I go first? I'll let Miriam conclude. I'll let Miriam have the final word. Um, I'll say, uh, yes, you can acknowledge that there are people who are struggling with psychiatric issues, with gender confusion. It is real. It is. People are experiencing it. Sometimes it happens for a variety of reasons. But I am running out of patience with all of the talk of just niceness. We do need 
people to boldly tell the truth to young people that it is impossible to be born in the wrong body and don't ever back down from it. And yes, you can invite people in a compassionate way to explore the many underlying issues that are often you know, linked with or associated with gender confusion. Oftentimes when people are struggling, it's not just gender confusion that's going on. There are, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's all kinds of other social factors. So do the hard work of exploring those things and saying, no, let's talk about this. I'm a safe place. You really can talk to me. Mm -hmm. Like put your, let your guard down and say, let's deal with this because yes, you may be experiencing this, but I guarantee you it's probably not the only thing going on in there. And so you get at the root of those other things, oftentimes the gender confusion goes away. Not all the time. And sometimes you may need to visit with a professional. Okay. But be bold. I mean, I'm serious. Like enough of the nonsense. Like say, there. look at your body. It'll tell you who you are. There's nothing wrong with it. Your body is you. Mm-hmm. You get the body that you get. And it is impossible mm-hmm. to ever be born inside the wrong one. Just that, Brandon, that, what I, what, if my understanding of the Cornell study on this was is correct, is that the lowest level of suicidal ideation among gender dysphoric people is people who are open about it. They tell people how they feel. They yeah. don't hold it in and they don't medicalize it. So they don't take yeah. the hormones. So they're, so they're, they're open. They're they're to use LGBT. Right, they're out, right? They're, they're perfectly open about how they feel, what they're experiencing, mm-hmm. but they don't medicalize it and try to change their body into a different body. That, 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 that it, it's still not, a great statistic, but it's, it is the lowest suicidal right. ideation is that they come out, they don't hold it in, but that they also don't medicalize it. Right. You and, do need, yes, that's, that's right. And you do need to be that safe place. Be willing to, don't be afraid of the deep lurking darkness. Like don't, I mean, people have to be ready to be that kind of sounding board for people's dark issues. And there's a lot of dark issues out there. So yes, be willing to be that vulnerable person who's willing to go and explore that troubling stuff, but don't ever affirm the lie. And I would say to parents, it's really time to get bold. Don't tolerate this. And I would even advise, if you can, as soon as you see this stuff entering into the schools where they're teaching this to young children, fight it in whatever way you can. Don't back down. Don't apologize for your beliefs. Be bold and say no. Don't tolerate this. You wouldn't give your child cigarettes. You wouldn't give your child alcohol. You wouldn't give your child, you shouldn't give your child puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. This, this is just, I, I'm, I really am, I, people don't realize how bad it is. And it's going to take people with a spine, especially parents, um, team up with other people to address it together. Because I'm telling you, opposition to this is spans the spectrum. Miriam and I are a microcosm of this. It's left, right, and center. Don't think that you're, even in a place like Madison, where it seems like they've just, you know, taken over the entire debate, and maybe it does seem that way. If I've learned anything in my years of covering this, is that I hear from a lot of people mm-hmm. who, who, who are about as diverse as you can possibly, uh, possibly be on everything, and they are righteously indignant. They are mad as hatters. The public does not support this. So speak up and be bold. Miriam, how would you say that we should try to love the people in question? I, well, I, I say be bold. Number one, just because you have a girl who likes to play with Tonka trucks or you have a boy who wants to wear uh, a tutu doesn't mean they were born in the wrong body. Number two, if you have a child who might turn out to be a gay child or a lesbian child, there's nothing wrong with it. 
don't try to make them into something that they're not. Three, seek out like, speak, stand up, speak out. Don't back out, back back down, give in or give up. Um, to tell the truth is always a good thing. The word no is a good word to know. Mm-hmm. These kids, as a teacher, I would listen. Uh, the first question I would I would ask any kid who, who came to me, they said, why do you feel that way? That, that's interesting. Can you explain it to me? I, I'm not real sure that I understand what you mean by this. And I would talk to them. Talk therapy is a wonderful thing. Um, and I'm not a therapist, but I've helped more students out by simply saying to them, you know, I know, I hear you. How did it come to this? What, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. What can I do? Tell me about it. Explain it to me. But also not allowing this falsehood to be taught in schools and sex ed courses or psychology courses because it's bogus. Um, and I, I care about detransitioners. I've talked to so many female detransitioners. And my, you know what I tell them? Welcome home, sister. We were waiting for you. So um, how can people connect with this, the organizations and stuff you're connected with? Can you give us some, like, Websites, phone numbers, places to go, Snapchats or whatever. How do people connect with you guys? All of my stuff is on the Christian Post. Um, I've got I also do the Life in the Kingdom podcast, which is part of CP's news coverage. But we don't I don't explore those issues there. Um, but that's where they can find me. My byline is all there. Um, I would also just point people toward a speech that I gave at the Ruth Institute, which is sort of a interfaith organization. It's run by some conservative Catholics down in Louisiana. Oh, they um, are conservative Catholics, but Ruth well, Institute puts out some good stuff too. They really, well, yeah, they do. Yeah, they and, really do. But I, I gave, I gave, a, I gave a speech at last year's Survivors of the Sexual Revolution Summit, mm-hmm. and Miriam was gracious enough to supply me with um, some remarks about her thoughts for that speech. And so I would very, oh, rec- cool. very much recommend people go listen to it. Uh, so if you go into YouTube and watch it before big tech censors it, but it's called reporting on the transgender movement, colon Brandon Showalter. And you should be able to find it. It's about 39 minutes long. Okay, great. Miriam, how about you? If people want to support you or connect with you? Hand, hands across the aisle, women and coalition has a website. Um, so just go to Google, type in hands across the aisle, women and coalition, and you'll be able to do it. If you want to contact me, I have a Facebook page, but it's very private. Uh, you want to contact me, you will message me. Um, I'm very careful about who I accept on my page because I don't, I mean, I, I don't feel very threatened when somebody says they're going to do me harm because I think it's, it's bullying and it doesn't bother me, but I don't want to have to deal with it all the time either. Right. But you, I don't think very many of our listeners would do that, but um, I totally understand. Well, okay. Um, you, do you want an email address? <laughs> No, no. I think they can connect with you that way. And also if you're a listener, if you want to, e- if you just email high point church and we'll, um, if you want to connect with her, just let us know what, what you want to connect with her about. And we'll be happy to connect you if your intentions seem pure. Um, how about that? Miriam, um, thanks so much for being on with us. Uh, I hope that, that you found this to be a, a welcoming atmosphere and we hope to get to hear from you more since you're so close by. And Brandon, thanks so much for spending time with us. Our My guests have been Brandon Showalter of the Christian Post and Miriam Benshalom. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, 
rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage in Equipment.